Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7. Verse 13 through verse 20. And Jesus says in verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but Inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then... You will know them by their fruits. In this paragraph in verse 13 and 14, Jesus gives an exhortation concerning two ways of life, two ways of religion with two entirely different destinies in the end. The first in verse 13 is with the wide gate that leads into the broad way. And by the broad way, Jesus means the way that is more pleasant more smooth and comfortable way to travel, an easy way in which men can think and believe and do as they please. And all seems well for them for a while, but the end of that way is eternal destruction. As he says in the middle of the verse, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many, many are those who enter by it. But then there is the second way, which is the narrow gate that leads into the narrow way. And it is called the narrow way because it is constricted. It is a way in which there are difficulties, there are self-denials and demands on this way, whoever would walk on it. And because of the difficulties, there are few who are found on it. But this narrow way is worth all of its trouble in the end that whatever difficulty one would encounter, because the end of this way is eternal life. And Jesus exhorts all men that they would find this narrow gate and enter by the narrow way. Verse 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate. Verse 14, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And few are those who find it. And then immediately after describing these two ways, in verses 15 down through verse 20, Jesus warns against false prophets or false teachers in his church, and he contrasts them with true, good, and faithful teachers. The false teachers are those who produce bad fruit in their lives and in the lives of others. And in the context, what this means is that the False prophets, they are those who are willing to lead men on that broad way that leads them into eternal destruction. But the good teachers, the faithful pastors in his church who produce the good fruit, 
They are those who lead men, sometimes few of them, on the narrow way that leads to eternal life in the end, and they are willing to endure the hardships and the difficulties and the trials of that narrow way. And Jesus says that the false teachers and the good teachers are distinguished by the fruit which they produce. The false teachers produce the bad fruit, the good teachers produce the good fruit. And Jesus says two times here, you will know them by their fruit in the beginning of verse 16, you will know them by their fruits, and again down in verse 20, so then you will know them by their fruits. The good fruit of the life of a pastor is not found in having many followers. That would contradict the context of verses 13 and 14. A good minister may be one who produces good fruit, but he has relatively few with him because he is on the narrow way that leads to eternal life. The good fruits of a man's ministry are not found in numbers, but they are found in faithfulness. And that's how I will view here the good fruits that Jesus speaks of in this passage. They are found in faithfulness of the minister of Christ. And they are found in three ways we'll consider tonight. First, faithfulness in life. Second, faithfulness in labors. And third, faithfulness in love. Faithfulness in life, in labors, and in love. And we'll look at each of these from some verses in the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy. And so in the first place tonight, faithfulness in life. And we'll turn to 1st Timothy chapter 6. 1st Timothy and chapter 6. Paul's writing to Timothy as a pastor in the church in Ephesus. And here in chapter 6, we read verse 11 down through verse 14. He says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important and there is nothing more difficult in the life of a minister than to keep his own heart right and his life before God. All the people of God are called to the pursuit of holiness, an absolute necessity in the Christian life. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, pursue sanctification or the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
First Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, Peter says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And then he says, Because it is written. And he refers to the Old Testament scripture as if it were just as true today as it was then. Because it is written, God says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And Paul writes in Second Corinthians 7 verse 1, He says, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And this pursuit of holiness is what Paul is commanding Timothy here in verse 11 as a pastor. And everything that Paul says to Timothy here is also commanded of believers. He begins verse 11 negatively first. He says, but flee from these things. And he could be referring to those who advocate a different doctrine back in verse 3 and do not agree with sound words. And then they go on and they are always interested in some kind of a controversy. But especially he is referring to the love of money and the love of the things of the world in verses 9 and 10. The word flee here means to run. It means to escape from them. It is in the present tense, which means that he must do this continually, always, always fleeing from these things so that they never catch up with you and entangle you. Shun them and avoid them and run from them. He adds weight to his exhortation by calling Timothy, you man of God. That's a title that can refer to all Christians in general, but it seems that Paul uses it here to speak of Timothy in his position as the pastor in the church. He means, you man of God, you are the man who belongs to God. You are the man whom God has called to do the work of pastor in the church in Ephesus. The King James versions give us the proper order of the words according to the original language, and they read like this, But you, O man of God, flee. O man of God, flee from these things. That letter, omega, in the Greek is the O in the English, rarely used in the Greek in this way. Paul is making this earnest plea to Timothy as the pastor of the church, that in contrast to those who pursue those worldly things and the love of money, that plunge them into ruin and destruction, but you, he says, O man of God, flee from these things and pursue an entirely different course of life. Other men belong to their money, but you belong to God, and you are a man of God. Do not look to the earthly riches, but to the heavenly and eternal riches, which can only come in the path of holiness. And then he speaks positively of this pursuit. He says, but flee from these things. And then he says, and pursue. If we flee from one thing, we must pursue another thing. And now Paul speaks here of pursuing, which means chase it down and capture it, and strive after it. And he mentions righteousness, godliness, faith, love, 
perseverance, and gentleness, six virtues, and most put these in pairs of two. So we have three pairs of two. The first are righteousness and godliness. Righteousness refers to the outward life of obedience to God. Godliness refers to the inward life of devotion and love and reverence and worship of God. The outward life of righteousness can only come from the inward life of godliness. And the second pair is faith and love, which are often found together in the Bible. Faith is the trust that we have in God, continual confidence in him. Love is love toward God, love toward our fellow man that flows out of this faith. The last pair here is perseverance and gentleness. Perseverance, sometimes translated as patience. It means endurance under trial. It means steadfastness under suffering. Determination through difficulty. Sticking to a task, no matter what the task, no matter what the cost might be. Perseverance and patience under trial. Gentleness means meekness or humility. A gentle person is one who is not always trying to defend his own rights and get his own way. A gentle person is always willing to humble himself before the correction of others. Some men have a steel backbone and they can stoically persevere through any kind of hardship. But they have steel, that's all they have is steel and they have no gentleness and no meekness. And Paul puts them side by side. They must both be present in the life of a Christian and in the life of a pastor especially. So these are the six virtues. And here we have really the entire holiness of life that Paul calls Timothy the pastor to pursue. In verse 12 he says, fight the good fight of faith. By which he reminds Timothy that he is in a conflict He is in a great struggle as a Christian. From the beginning to the end, the idea here is of an athletic arena in which one is struggling as a wrestler against his opponent for the prize. The prize is eternal life. And he must lay hold of more and more of eternal life and enter into the fullness of it in the life to come. Anyone who turns away from this world and its ways to the ways of holiness with God, will find himself in a most intense and continual struggle, especially one who is a pastor in the church. So Paul makes this impassioned plea to Timothy. But you, he says, O man of God, in contrast to all the sins of the world, flee from them and pursue this holiness of life. And he does so because the life of the minister often sets the standard for the entire congregation. And whether people realize it or not, they are looking to the pastor and how he lives so often as an example Everything 
which Paul exhorts Timothy here to do, to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness. It is what should be seen in the life of a Christian minister. In sincerity and truth, always repenting, not perfect, but always repenting, always believing, always pursuing this standard of holiness in every aspect of the Christian life. Back in chapter 4 of this letter, we could turn there for just a minute. Back in chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul says at the end of the verse, he says, in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. That's what a pastor should do, show himself in these ways what a Christian really looks like. A saved sinner always seeking after the will of God in this way. Back in chapter 1 in verse 19, Paul said, keeping faith and a good conscience. And that's what the pastor should always be doing, seeking a good conscience. Paul says in Acts chapter 24 in verse 16, he said, I always do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men. Some men preach, but they do not live as they should. And such a man troubles the consciences of God's people because they wonder how he can preach but not do what he preaches. Other men avoid certain topics in their preaching. Because they know that it would trouble their consciences too much to preach them. Spurgeon said there are some men who live so poorly and preach so well that when they are out of the pulpit, you wish they would never get into it. And when they are in it, you wish they would never get out. But the congregation should never have this problem with their pastor. What he is in public, that's what he should be, always in private. And he should be able to say with Paul in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. When the pastor preaches in the pulpit, before he ever preaches publicly, He must always preach to himself privately and on his knees in prayer. Every Christian must pursue holiness, but the pastor must pursue it at a higher level. Paul said back in chapter 4 and verse 16, Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching, Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation, both for yourself and for those who hear you. Robert Murray McShane, he said, The greatest need of my people is my own personal holiness. So we've seen here faithfulness in life, and we come to the second good fruit of the pastor, and it is faithfulness in labor. 
and we'll turn in our Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy and chapter 1. 2 Timothy, the overall theme of this letter of 2 Timothy, uh, two written by Paul to Timothy as a pastor again, the overall theme is preserve, preach, and persevere under persecution. Preserve the truth of the gospel. Preach the gospel. Persevere in doing so, even under persecution. And this is what we read. We'll look at a few verses here. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Paul says in verse 12, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. In verse 13, Paul exhorts Timothy to retain the standard of sound words, or it could be translated, hold fast to the pattern of of sound words, which refers to the sound doctrines of the Word of God. The Bible contains doctrines which come to us through the words of the inspired Scripture. Paul has spoken of this back in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. He said, You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, the sound doctrine of the word. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3, he says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and knows nothing. So the Bible is not just a gathering of random verses. And it is not just disconnected words and disconnected thoughts. But it can be brought together into a system of doctrines. And we are not the first tonight to open our Bibles. But we live after nearly 2,000 years of church history, and the standard of the sound doctrines of the Bible have been hashed out in so many centuries before us, and we have them preserved for us in the great confessions of faith. In this church, we hold to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And we could go down through a long list of the doctrines of the Bible, the doctrine of God and the Trinity, the doctrine of the fall of mankind into sin and the effects that that has on the human race. The doctrine of Christ, the mediator, the two natures in the one person forever. The doctrine of regeneration and effectual calling and justification and sanctification and repentance and faith and perseverance and the law of God and the worship of the church and the Christian Sabbath and the bapt and baptism and what a church member actually looks like. All of these are truths in the Bible. And the work of the pastor is to retain the standard of the sound words by teaching them, preserving them, and preaching them to the people. 
The word sound here means healthy. If Christians are to be healthy and strong in the Christian life, then their pastor must instruct them in the sound and healthy doctrines of the word. Otherwise, what will happen is what we read of in Ephesians chapter 4, that they will be tossed to and fro and by waves and carried about and carried about by every wind of doctrine. In other words, the false teachers have doctrines. The devil has doctrines. And he brings them into the church, carried away by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. Some people will say, well, we don't really want too much doctrine. We don't want doctrine, we want faith, we want love, and we want Jesus. As if there's a contradiction between them. As if we can have one. If we have one, then we cannot have the other. But Paul tells us right in this verse that we can have them all together. Because he says, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me. And then he says, in the faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. So all sound doctrine centers in Christ and it all flows from him and we need both of them at the same time. In verse 14, the pastor is to guard, Paul says. He means preserve, protect, the treasure of the gospel which has been entrusted to you. Preserve it, guard it from all corruption and any loss. It is a glorious treasure that has been entrusted to you. With all watchfulness, guard it. But it cannot be in your own strength, but only in the strength of the Holy Spirit, the power of Christ by the Spirit who dwells within us. It's interesting to note at the end of verse 12, when Paul says that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him, the word guard and entrusted there is the same words as found in verse 14. Guard the treasure that has been entrusted to you. Now in verse 12, Paul is speaking of God himself being able to guard Paul's salvation, Paul's soul that he has entrusted to him. But now in verse 14, he writes of the pastor guarding the treasure that God has entrusted to him. So in verse 12, God guards the pastor's salvation. In verse 14, the pastor guards the gospel treasure that God has entrusted to him. This is the preservation of the gospel. And the pastor must be faithful to guard these things. We see the hardship of doing this, the suffering, the persecutions that come upon those who preach these things. We read in verse 8 of this chapter, he says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Then we read down in chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, You therefore, my son... 
Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, he says, Suffer hardship, endure hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Down in verse 10 of chapter 2 we read, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain salvation, the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. And then in verse 15 he says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. So here Paul speaks of the labors of the pastor in his study, in his knowledge of the word, his preparation of his sermons, the words diligent and the word workman speak of the strenuous and exhausting toil that is needed, the long hours, the great care, the pains in the study of the original languages to know what do the words actually mean and how can these things be put together so that the truth that is preached is according to the word of God accurately. Sometimes the difference between truth and error is like a razor's edge and the pastor must be able to steer straight straight course between them and speak the word as he should. His aim, his aim is not the approval of men, but the approval of his master, so that he is approved unto God, and he does not need to be ashamed. Then we read down in chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Paul makes a dark prophecy of the coming apostasy of the church. The commentator Lenski, he says on this prophecy here that this is, this prophecy has what he calls a repeated fulfillment. And it is now in the progress of fulfillment. So that's the way we should look at this. It does not just take place at one time in church history, but it has had multiple repeated fulfillments, and it continues to be fulfilled. This is something Timothy must know. He says, but realize this. Prepare yourself for what is coming. He says that in the last days, the last days are the entire time between the first and second coming of Christ. We are living in the last days. And he says, in the last days, difficult times will come. Sometimes translated perilous times. Grievous times will come to describe the difficulties and the troubles that Christians will face when sin abounds among men. And then he goes on to describe, to list these sins, verses 2 through 4. He says, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of man, 18 different ways in which he describes the sin. But then in verse 5, we are surprised to read, holding to a form of godliness, 
although they have denied its power. A shocking statement of the apostle that the people he has just described in the preceding verses are not those who have nothing to do with the gospel, but they are those who know the gospel and they even profess the gospel. They speak the language of the gospel. They put on an outward show of godliness. You will find them in a church on a Sunday morning. But at the same time, by their sinful lives, they have denied and they continue to deny the inward transforming power of God in salvation. The list of sins that Paul gives here in verses 2 through 4 is very much like the list given at the end of Romans chapter 1, but with a very significant difference. At the end of Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks of unenlightened pagans who have never heard the word of God. But here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he speaks of those who live under the full light of the gospel, but they continue in their ways of sin. D. Edmund Herb Hebert, who is a good commentator, he writes on this. He says, it is a fearful portrayal of an apostate Christianity, a new paganism masquerading under the name of Christianity. This is what makes the work of the pastor all the more difficult if he is to retain the standard of sound words and be faithful to the whole counsel of God because it is in the midst of this moral decline and all of these worldly sins that have even come into the professing church that he must continue to guard the treasure that has been entrusted to him. And then we read in chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. Paul says in verse 1, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So here in these verses, Paul really brings his letter to Timothy to a climactic charge, a most solemn charge, because he is calling Timothy to preach in the light of the coming day of judgment. When he and all ministers must appear in the presence of God and Christ to give an account for everything that they have taught in his church and how they have conducted themselves and how they have ordered the church. It will be the day of Christ appearing in his kingdom, in his second coming, who is to judge the living and the dead. The charge is given in verse 2. In the beginning of the verse, he says, preach the word. That's the charge that Paul gives to Timothy. Preach the word of God. Preach the truth of the gospel. The inspired scriptures, as he's just mentioned back up in verses 16 and 17 of the preceding chapter, all scripture is inspired of God, all scripture, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, fully equipped, we should say, for every good work. In other words, Paul is referring to the whole Bible here in chapter 4 and verse 2. The entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is to be preached in the church. Every word of it breathed out of God's mouth. Every word of it is good for our souls from his wisdom. Preach the word. This is the primary and the highest task of the pastor. He has other duties in the life and order of the church, yes, but this is his chief and highest work is to preach the word. The word preach comes from the idea of a herald being sent with an authoritative message from a king. That's the way it was back in the days of the apostles when a king had to send out a message to throughout his kingdom. He did not have television, so he would call a primetime address on some night and speak to the entire nation. He had to send out heralds across the land. And the heralds were given the written message. And the heralds, when they went throughout the kingdom with the message, they would not dare to alter the king's message in the least. They had to declare it, every word of it, just as the king had written it. But here it is the king of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has sent his messengers, his pastors, with his truth in his word to speak in the church. And they must proclaim his message without compromise, without any alteration in what it is supposed to mean. They must preach the word, all of the word, not just some parts of the word, not just some parts of the word that seem more pleasant to men, but all the word of God. They are to preach. They are not to take doctrines of the Bible and hide them down in the basement of the church so that they never see the light of day. Some men, some men, they believe things, but you will never hear them preach them in the pulpit as if what they believe and what they preach are two different things. Paul says no. Paul says the pastor is to believe all the word of God and he is to preach all of the scriptures. Preach the word, Paul says. All of the word. He says he is to preach the word, not the opinions of men, not even his own opinions. Not the prevailing thoughts of the culture or the time in which one lives, but the pure and unadulterated word of God. He is to preach the word in doing this. He says, preach the word, be ready, be diligent, always ready to preach. And then he says, in season and out of season, meaning whether it seems favorable, it is in season or whether it seems unfavorable makes no difference. And then he gives these three rapid commands as to how he is to preach. He is to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And he is to do so with great patience and instruction. And then he gives a reason 
for this solemn charge in verses 3 and 4. He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to miss. Once again, Paul speaks here prophetically of the future. He does not speak of the unchurched, but he speaks of professing Christians who can no longer endure. They will no longer tolerate. They will no longer put up with the sound doctrines of the word of God. They are unsatisfied with the old paths of the word. They crave after something new and novel, something entertaining and more exciting and more pleasurable. They want to have their ears tickled And so they gather to themselves teachers who will confirm confirm them in what they want. And this is what we see so often all around us in the world today. But the faithful pastor, he must continue in preaching the word. And why must he do so? Because the word is the only means... And the only instrument that Christ has given for the building of his church. How are sinners, dead sinners, brought to new life? By the word. Peter said, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. James writes, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us into new life. How are Christians sanctified? And how do they make progress in holiness? It is through the word. Sanctify them in the truth. Jesus prayed, thy word is truth. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, he said, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. How how do believers grow? How are they built up and strengthened in the Christian life? The answer is by the word. Peter says, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that you may, that by it, by it, you may grow in respect to your salvation. James says, in humility, we must receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. How do Christians fight the devil and the spiritual warfare that they are in? The answer is by the word. taking up the full armor of God with their loins girded with the truth and their feet shod with the gospel and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. How may we walk safely on that narrow way which leads to life But it is a narrow way that is sometimes dark and sometimes dangerous. How can we make it safely? Paul tells us, 
Acts chapter 20 and verse 32, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How is Christ honored and glorified in his church? By the preaching of the word of the cross. Him we proclaim, Paul says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 1, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And he is speaking of the preaching of the cross. So this is what the pastor must be convinced. That God has given only one instrument. The gospel, which is the power of God to salvation. There is only one means of regeneration. There is only one means of sanctification. There is only one means of growth and progress. There is only one means of safety and protection. There is only one means to bring us safely to heaven. It is the word of the living God. Preach the word. Preach the word. That's the work of a pastor. Sinclair Ferguson says, he asks the question, what does the church do when it finds itself in a situation like this? Described in verses 3 and 4. What do we do? What does the church do? His answer is, preach the word. It's the only solution to the problem. It's the only thing we got. Preach the word. We look back for a moment to Earlier in chapter 3 and verse 12. Chapter 3 and verse 12. And Paul says there in verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. Every Christian who seeks to live godly, carefully, he will be persecuted. This is the difficult and the perilous times that Paul speaks of in verse 1. We often think of persecution by violent oppression by governments and hostile groups. In this context, Paul is speaking about persecution that is a much more subtle kind of persecution because here we have many churches and those churches are perhaps large and they're filled with the people described in verses 2 through 4. And then they are also filled with those described in chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4 who can no longer endure the sound doctrine. This is difficult and perilous times. This is hardship and suffering that comes in this context to the pastor and to the people who are trying to hold to the purity of the gospel. The pastor who labors in a time like this, he will not be a popular man. And more often than not, not. He will have very few who are with him because he is on the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And there are few who find that way. This is not the persecution of government powers. This is not the persecution of hostile and violent groups. This is the persecution of an oppressive culture. 
The persecution of marginalization. The persecution of being sidelined and ostracized. The persecution of a culture that says, whatever God says in the Bible, it is of no value to us, and we do not even want to give it a hearing at all. And the pastor feels the pressure of this persecution. The pressure to compromise and to conform to the world. But he must overcome every hindrance, every difficulty, every disappointment, every grief, every depression that comes to him. To continue to fulfill these words, the hardship of the pastor Only the grace of God can help him to hold fast to the faithful word and to preserve the church, to preserve the truth of the gospel, to preach it and to persevere in doing so, even under hardship and persecution, which Paul speaks of here. So we've seen faithfulness in life, faithfulness in labor, And lastly, more briefly, faithfulness in love. And we ask this question, why would the pastor do all of this? Why does he faithfully live as he should? Why does he faithfully labor? In the preaching and the pastoring of the church, the only answer is love. Love to God and love to the people for their salvation. Paul has often spoken of love in these epistles. He says, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says back in chapter 1 and verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And he tells Timothy on several occasions to pursue love. Love for God is the first and the greatest of all commandments. And Jesus has commanded us to love one another, even as I have loved you. And all of the work of the pastor must be done out of love. This is why the pastor labors in preaching and teaching out of love to God. So that God might have a church that is what it ought to be. The church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And that God would be glorified in the preaching of his son and the gospel of Christ. So that to him would be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. And also out of love to the members of the church. That he would be a true shepherd who watches over the flock of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness and not as lording it over them, but proving to be an example to them, to keep them safe on the narrow way that leads to eternal life so that they might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that they would be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work, and especially that they would be able to stand before Christ on the last day of judgment, safe, safe, having come to the end of that narrow way. 
The pastor must have love for his people. Paul says here, chapter 4 and verse 6, he said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And that's what the pastor does. He pours himself out in the sacrifice and service of their faith. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 7, he said, but we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you had become very dear to us. You are witnesses and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved toward you, believers. So this is why the pastor labors in countless hours in the study and preparation of so many sermons. Intercessory prayer for the saints in the church. Watching over all of them, a labor of love to God. The good fruit of a true and faithful pastor is faithfulness in his life before the people, faithfulness in his labors for them, and faithfulness in his love for them. And that is the good fruit of a pastor. So that on the last day, the people of the church may stand with him and hear those most wonderful words of Jesus when he returns. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, thank you for the word of God that guides us in everything that we need to do in all the life of the pastor, in the life of the people in the church. Thank you for the warnings concerning difficult and perilous times that will come. And Lord Jesus, give us all grace and strength that we may be able to endure the hardship and we may be able to be pleasing to you. Have mercy upon us now. Bless your word to us today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.